Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. We are back with Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri, here to present you with a rare triple feature of flash fiction stories, aided and abetted by my dear friend and colleague, Diana Foe. Oh, thank you, Marco, for having me. And this is just a really fascinating trio of stories that we're bringing you today. Yeah, I feel I should uh, give a little background on how these stories came to exist, because they're a lot shorter than most of the stories that we feature on this show. Uh, during the early days of the COVID pandemic in 2020, one of my colleagues, Haley Wagreich, got an idea that we should commission a bunch of flash fiction solicited from from uh, writers that we loved and admired and were and uh, had already worked with to uh, contribute. Well, to write stories that drew from those early feelings and you know, the ways of processing what was unfolding all around us. We're talking about, you know, March or April of 2020, when, you know, the uh, the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic was at its height, anxiety was at its height, and uh, we were just, you know, still trying to wrap our heads on what was going on. But we knew enough to... Um, get some really interesting flash fiction out of these. All of these stories were around 1,500 words, and we got about 10, 10 of them out of the project, and we're featuring three of them today. We're going to intro all of them and then uh, talk about them all at the end. And we'll start this uh, trio of stories with A Perfect Host, where we meet a seemingly alluring, very well-connected, and impeccable woman who is more than what she appears to be. This is A Perfect Toast by Catherine M. Valenti, narrated by Leon Nixon. She is not what you think. Her eyes do not crawl with flies. Her skin does not burn with lesions. Her tongue does not swell in her mouth. Nothing of her rots. Nothing blisters. Nothing reeks. Nothing wastes. She is beautiful. She is young. She smells like frankincense and hand sanitizer. You have met her already, but you didn't understand. You didn't notice her. You don't remember. You were so busy that day. So many things on your mind. But she noticed you. She notices everything. Remembers everyone. She has apartments in a dozen cities, a daisy chain of identical and very particular rooms. Yes, she has that kind of money. She is that kind of money, a fiscal singularity beyond which it is nearly impossible to conceptualize life. She lives by herself, always, 
in every place, and always in a crowded high-rise. At the top, of course, a penthouse seated on a towering throne of writhing, dancing, cooking, arguing, singing, exercising, excreting humans. But none of that touches her up there, safe in the purity of sky and glass and soundproofed silence. It is not impossible that you've visited her in one of these far-flung flats. She is active on most dating apps. Perhaps that is how you met her. Perhaps she buzzed you in. Perhaps you nodded to the doorman as you went up, excited, nervous, thrilled to be chosen, thrilled to be seen, thrilled to be special. And you were. She wants you to know that. You were special. She loved you so much. The walls of her places are brutally white, pitilessly clean. She touches nothing with her bare hands. There is a porcelain box of surgical gloves in every room. A tall, thin bottle of milky antibacterial soap perched over every sink, like a miniature crow with a dripping beak. Over every clean white mantle, in every clean white apartment, hangs a long white shelf containing dozens of small glass vials with rubber stoppers, neatly labeled. A place of honor, where most people keep family portraits. The bottles read, Juniper, Rose, Peppermint, Clove, Myrrh, Camphor, Ambergris, Poppy, Styrax. Some have other less straightforward names. Revive, Inspire, Welcome, Immune, Bliss, Pure Wellness. The essential oils floating inside are the only colors anywhere. A stainless steel, slimline, temperature-controlled wine cellar dominates the kitchen. Inside, she keeps bottles of bleach. The recessed mood lighting in her ceiling is a blue starfield of UV lights. But even under their punishing, revelatory gaze, not one unseemly splatter shines. A few carefully chosen pieces hang in her apartments. Minimalist portraits. A bat hanging in a white wood. A scaled pangolin tucked into a perfect Fibonacci curl. A pale mouse in a pale field. They don't seem like much to you as you pass by on the way to the bedroom. But you cannot begin to imagine what they cost. She is a profound patron of the arts. All her life, she has quietly sponsored playwrights, musicians, painters, novelists, sculptors. She does not discriminate and she asks for no credit. She is happy to help. Happy just to stand near to genius, exhilarated to spark exquisite and fragile works, to shepherd them into this world. Some have tried to paint her. She prefers they do not, just as no one ever likes the way they look in photographs or thinks they sound right when they hear their voices recorded. She does not recognize herself in all their long bones and wings and arrows-like teeth. At night... When no one can see her, when no one even knows she is home, she watches television from a cold chair of antimicrobial copper. She wears a white N95 ventilator mask and a white silk dress and a clear plastic hazmat hood. She enjoys friends. A silver laptop rests on her lap. She types idly. She moderates several online groups for homeopathy, faith healing, radical toxin cleanses, mothers against vaccination. She does not like to let the post cues get too backed up. The lights of the screen move on her skin. The lights of the city outside slowly go out, street by street. She is so lovely, long and thin with a belly like a cold steel slab, her hair is the color of a dark hallway leading nowhere. Her eyes are the color of acute cyanosis. Every movement of her limbs looks like an invitation. And it is. If she allows you to touch her, she won't make you use a condom. So unnecessary when all she wants is to connect. She finds you fascinating. Everything about you, down to the smallest cell. 
She wants to be with you completely, as completely as it is possible to interlace with a person. She wants to disappear into you. But she will keep her mask on the whole time. She will not be gone in the morning. That's not her way. Once she's chosen you, she will never leave you. You will have woken to the sound of her in the shower. The steam so hot it scalds the tip of your nose when you peek in, scraping her skin until it is clean, and then until it is red. She possesses a capacity for faithfulness beyond comprehension. Even if you walk out now, into the elevator and down into the marble lobby, past the doorman and into this or that nameless city, she will remain a part of you forever, as deep as blood. But perhaps you didn't meet her that way. No, not that way, not you. You might have passed her in the street, hurrying to work, hurrying to mimosas and crepes, hurrying to the gym. Your breath, her breath, frosting in the morning air, mingling whiteness, merging. You might have just missed seeing her on a transcontinental flight last spring. She waited patiently, a few people behind you in passport control, hoping you would turn your head toward her even for a moment, her breath cool by the time it brushed the back of your neck. You might have served her in a cafe that serves the best brandy Alexanders in the city, the heat of her mouth print pulsing slick on the empty glass once she's slipped away like a last chance. She always tips well. She can afford it. It's the least she can do. Or you might have gone to one of her parties. Parties? Surely not this girl, with the soap bottles and the bleach wine and the rubber gloves and that white mask like a mouth from another world? Surely she hates crowds? The noise, the grime, the smell, the closeness? But she is not what you think. She adores company. She absolutely craves it. She hates to be alone. Sometimes she goes out into the open-air markets at night. No one notices her. She isn't hungry. She doesn't need anything. She just wants to be close to people, to feel them press against her, to feel what they feel. She walks the stalls, her long, pale fingers hardly even grazing the exotic meats that hang in row after glistening row just being, just breathing. But she always wants more than those little barter pits can offer. Her loneliness burns her hollow. She isn't what you thought. She's lonely, just like you. But doesn't she have anyone? Doesn't she have family? Oh, yes. She comes from old, old money. She has siblings. They get along, she supposes. They're successful at what they do. They keep in touch, but they've never been able to give her what she needs. They just have very different interests, separate lives. Even so, she always invites them to her parties. She waits by the door every time like a puppy, hoping. But they won't come. Not yet, anyway. Her affairs light up the map. Seattle, Milan, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, Tehran. Every town's hottest ticket. Hundreds of people, thousands if she can manage it, glittering with sweat and tears and beauty, packed in tight so she can feel the press of their bodies against hers as she moves through the crowd, dancing, writhing, feverish, breathless. The music is so loud, so loud and so long. She has heard them on the radio, telling everyone to stay indoors, and she knows it is nonsense. You can't live your life that way. She doesn't want to stifle you the way they do. She welcomes everyone. She loves everyone. Her revelers, her worshipers, her careless, lovely friends. Come in, come out, come close. Take all I have to give. Eat, drink, kiss, dance, Annihilate the aching separation between living beings. Shout to be heard over the gorgeous din. Whisper so close your words fall into open ears like wet, frothing champagne. Share glasses. Share fluids. Share everything. Revive. Inspire. Welcome. Immune. Bliss. P.
pure wellness. She slips invisibly through the throng, the perfect host. She embraces an old man here, a child there. She kisses an artist, locks hands with a doctor, grinds against a student on holiday. She will get to you, don't worry. She is coming, drenched in plenty, her eyes joyful, the sheer infectious light of her swallowing everyone she touches. But you cannot hold on to her. She is not for you to keep, but to share. She is unselfish, endlessly enough for all. You want to limit her, but she won't be restrained. Once you feel the weight of her hand on the small of your back, it's too late. She has already moved on. She adores all of them. Everyone who came when she called, out into the quiet, empty streets to meet her. But you are special. Don't think for a moment she didn't want you in particular. That this was casual for her. A momentary inflammation. Nothing serious. She loves you. She loves you so much. That's why she wanted you here. With her. At the end. She wanted to be a part of you. And now she is. Look, it's last call. She's waiting for you, standing out on the balcony, gazing over the radiant city, every radiant city, each one of them buzzing, chanting, barely able to breathe for the song of her name in their mouths. She is so glad you came out tonight, so happy just for the chance to be near you. It would have been so easy to stay inside like you were told. You must have wanted her so badly. It thrills her. She even wants you to meet her family. Maybe this time, she whispers into your ear. Your heart races. You feel dizzy with her closeness, her perfume, her warmth. I've been around the block, you know. So many disappointments. But maybe this time, it's the real thing. Maybe I can have it all. Maybe this time it's forever. I want to believe it can be. She stretches out her hand, and you do see it then, only for a moment, what all her beloved artists drew. The bones, the wings, the arrows like teeth. The streetlights and the starlight melt together in a silver-jeweled wreath round her brow. A halo. A corona. Behold, a white horse, and she that sat upon it came bearing a crown and set forth to conquer. And then it's gone, and she's just a girl again, a pretty girl at a pretty party that you went to because, goddammit, you wanted to. She touches your arm when she laughs and leans in close. You were so bored tonight. You couldn't take another minute of your own four walls. You needed this. You deserved this. Everyone is being ridiculous anyway. It's only the flu. In a couple of weeks, it'll all be over. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Next up is Shopping Day, a dystopian story about a family struggling not to be pulled apart. Written by Tananarive Du and narrated by Natalie Nautis. They had friends and neighbors who had never come home from shopping day. By the time it rolled around, only powders and canned foods were left in the pantry, 
and Aisha's lunch for mom was a mystery stew of flavors tastier than it had any right to be. She'd saved a turkey neck bone, and the meat slipped from the bone. Mom's tired face brightened after she took her first bite, and she smiled at Aisha over her raised spoon. Even Darnell and Rita slurped from their bowls with appreciation, emptying them fast. Two hours of prep and cooking, gone in a few greedy gulps. The twins put down their empty bowls, knowing better than to ask for more, although they were staring at mom with longing as she ate at her usual measured pace. If you didn't remind her, mom sometimes hardly ate at all. Who wants this last piece? Mom said from habit, but Aisha insisted that she eat every bite. The twins glared at her in silent protest, but even at eight years old, they understood that she needed her meal because she needed her strength to go outside. By living carefully, Mom had gone a full month without needing to shop, but they were low on everything now. Most of all, the twins needed albuterol for their asthma. She could barter for groceries with the neighbors, but medicine was precious and meant biking to the distribution lots. If I'm not back by six o'clock, Mom said, you know what to do. The protocol was this. The curfew was enforced at six, so the only ones out were robbers and soldiers. Each night, they had to make sure their windows and doors were boarded tight. Aisha had to inspect every inch, looking for weakness and imperfections. The only way they had survived in their ruined neighborhood for so long after most other people had left was by being careful. If mom was ever gone for six hours without word, Aisha knew that meant she had to tell the twins to grab their backpacks and they would use their last credits to board a train. All reports said the camps were worse than the cities, so she would try to find her aunt in Jacksonville if she had to leave Atlanta. She was still only 16, but she might pass for 18. Unclaimed minors were sent to the children's camps. She and the twins might be separated. That couldn't happen. This is the last time, Mom promised, wrapping her head with a scarf that protected her scalp from the sun's vicious midday heat. Once I get the meds, we'll go. Sadie says Jacksonville's getting better. Flooding's gone down. Aisha tried to pretend this was only an ordinary shopping trip as she hugged her mother goodbye, although she had known for two years that every hug could be their last. She wished her mother's old Smith & Wesson had bullets and was more than just a prop. But they had to choose medicine over ammo, and medicine cost the most of all. With her mother gone, Aisha mapped the day so she wouldn't make herself sick with worry. For the first hour, she would practice piano. For the second hour, she would give the twins their 30-minute lessons one at a time. For the third hour, she would find any scraps she could fix for dinner. Her plans kept her mind on her fingers, on the arpeggios, on the scales she was trying to teach her younger sister and brother, on the boiling water on the stove. She did not check the news, because the news would only make her anxious. Only if mom is late, she told herself. I'll only check then. Up until the instant the digital clock changed from 5.49 to 5.50, Aisha expected her to come panting through the door. Once, Mom had come back at 5.47, her latest ever, and Aisha had paced the entire time, so she had not allowed herself to worry again. When 5.50 came, it was a betrayal of her trust, and then terror flooded her veins with ice. All three of them sat in silence, staring at the clock until 5.55. Darnell and Rita had given up childish habits like squirming at the table since they were always grateful for food, any food, and they all knew the clock meant Mom was running out of time. We have to start locking up, Darnell said. That's the rule. Five more minutes, Aisha said. The twins looked at each other like they were parents and she was a wayward child. Rita didn't say anything, but tears shimmered in her eyes. Aisha didn't know if Rita was more worried about mom's safety or afraid that robbers or soldiers would come to their door. Rita looked ready to sprint from her seat, her meal forgotten. Trust me, we have time, Aisha said. She's just a little held up. 
She's pedaling full speed right now with her bag of surprises. Close your eyes and you'll see her. Saying it aloud made it seem true. With her eyes closed for ten seconds, Aisha saw her mother's time-worn sneakers pedaling furiously. The twins closed their eyes too and looked noticeably relieved, so much so that Darnell stirred at his plate and took another bite. Under the table, Aisha checked her phone for news and saw the alert right away. Their street was being relocated tonight. The relocations had been taking place in communities bordering theirs, but somehow they had been spared, until now. The government wanted to keep track of survivors, and forced relocation was the new state law in most of the neighborhoods, still harboring a few people. Three thuds landed on the door as soon as Aisha saw the bulletin. She caught her breath. Aisha? A man's voice called. Open up! Hurry! It was only their neighbor, Devin. He was from Jamaica and had been visiting family in the U.S. when the trouble started. Now his family was dead, and only he and his wife, the visitors, were left. He was wild-eyed when she opened the door. Your mom's back, Devin said. Aisha couldn't lie. Her face must have said it all. He cursed. She stopped by before she left and said to look out for you. Come with us now. Everyone has to leave the building. They have tear gas. As if in confirmation, Aisha heard a not-too-distant sound like a small explosion. Soldiers were launching tear gas into a neighboring building. But where are they taking us? Aisha said. How can we let Mom know? They'll give us trackers, he said. That's their story anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Another boom outside, and the sound of screams this time. Darnell and Rita jumped up from the table and huddled together in the corner by the stove. They were crying now. Devin's wife, Nia, pushed into the apartment in a cloud of the coconut oil she used for her dreadlocks. She must have had a year's supply, Aisha thought. Her mind was looking for anything else to think about, so she fixed her attention on the salt and pepper locks that grew down her neighbor's back. She tried not to see the desperation in the woman's eyes. Desperation and something new and dangerous. Why are we still talking? Naya said, get your things, we'll claim you. Aisha wanted to hear it as a generous offer, that a neighbor was willing to vouch for them to keep them together, which was what mom said mattered most, but Aisha's head was shaking. Something just felt wrong. No, she said, she'll be here any minute. She's on her way. Devin took Aisha's shoulders and shook her hard, as if to knock thoughts from her head. It's six, girl, you're talking nonsense. They've picked her up by now. Aisha's eyes didn't soften to signal that she understood. It's not six yet. She looked at the clock. Her mom had two more minutes. He hissed with irritation and rushed into the kitchen, grabbing Rita by one arm and Darnell by the other. The twins wailed. Stop it, Aisha said. Let them go. Nia, who was oh so gentle, and had fixed them endless plates of spicy jerk chicken back when chickens were plentiful, tugged on Aisha to keep her from interfering. You don't understand. This is what she wanted. We promised to look after you. Everyone loses people, Aisha. Everyone. But you'll have each other. You'll have us. Devin was so strong that he had heaved one twin under his left arm and one under his right, like potato sacks, and no amount of wriggling could free them. They screamed. Come with us or not, Devin said, his voice strained from their weight. His steps were slightly staggered, but he bumped past the table to make his way to the door. Rita wailed anew when her knee bumped the tabletop. A dish clattered to the floor. Stop it, you're hurting them, Aisha said. He's saving them, child, Nia said. Can't you see that? Do you want them in a camp? As another tear gas bomb exploded, this one close enough to smell the bitter chemicals, Aisha thought she did understand. When mom always said, you know what to do, this was what she meant. The hard thing. The unspeakable was what she must do. Everyone lost people, just like Nia said. Their lives in this tiny, forgotten apartment had been a dream that ended long ago. They only hadn't known it yet. Wait. Aisha said, her throat nearly sealed with a sob. I'll get the bags. As soon as she spoke the words, 
Mom was standing in the open doorway like she'd been conjured. It was six exactly. Her scarf was gone. Her hair must. Sweat dappled her shirt. But her shopping duffel was slung across her shoulder, bulging with necessities. Aisha stared for long seconds to make sure Mom wasn't only her imagination, but Rita and Darnell were calling for her. Slowly, Devin lowered them to their feet. He did not seem happy to see her. What's going on? Mom said, her voice even, not angry. Mom diffused conflicts. She never exacerbated them. That was another way she had kept them all alive. She had once talked a robber out of hurting them with kindness in her voice and an apple. Relocation, Nia said. You told us if it ever happened. We were just doing what's right, Devin said. Then Aisha remembered that families with children got extra food credits, and she wondered if her neighbors had come for selfish reasons. Stories said that sometimes people bought and sold children they had saved from the camps. Aisha stared into Devin's eyes to try to see the truth, but he looked away. Glad you made it back, he said, his voice soft. We were worried. Mom might have been wondering the same thing about their motives, but she always hid her worries behind a smile. Thank you, she said. When they didn't leave immediately, Mom repeated herself. Thank you so much. Devin and Nia looked at each other, as if trying to reach a decision. Then Devin took a step toward the door. Of course, he said. Neighbors look out for neighbors. As soon as they were gone, the door shut and locked tight behind them. They all hugged Mom and could smell her visit outside, the sweat on her skin and smoke in her hair. They hugged so tightly that they could feel each other's hearts beating in their breasts. The inhalers, Rita said. Her wheezing was more obvious in her voice now that she'd had so much excitement. Yes, I got everything. Now you grab your bags, Mom said. She lowered herself to eye level to talk to the twins, in a voice as if she were about to tell a grand fairy tale, with a pose on one knee that Aisha thought she might remember most of her mother for the rest of her life. We're together now, Mom said. Let's see what's next. As always, Mom pretended to smile. And to wrap up our stories for this episode, we have a story about the Mosque of Lucid Dreams, where young children slumber in a world that is filled with their most wild imaginings until their cryosleep takes a dark turn. This is Lady Cataract Comes to the Mosque, written by Usman T. Malik, narrated by Natalie Nautis. At dusk, Father switches the sun off. The skylights turn a deep blue. Night glides across the walls like a curtain. In the sleep niches of the mosque, the dozen hunker down to dream, well before Lady Cataract's arrival. Bina is the first to hit lucidity. In her dream, she mazes through the alleys of Lahore, except this is the Lahore of the Mughals, the kidney-shaped 16th-century city defined by the curve of the Ravi, a living, thriving metropolis filled with Bina's wards running around screaming in wonder. So many treasures, so many delights. Shahi Tukre, Golgape, Pakore Samose, Ras Malai, Gulab Jamon. The carts are bursting with sweets, Paper kites zip and butterfly across the sky. A teenage couple strolls under a Mughal arch glowing in neon. What else is real in the world, my love, except for your eyes? A half-naked man with gleaming muscles stands in the middle of a street and gestures at his wicker basket. A snake noses its way out, turns into a rope, and wriggles up into the sky. The snake charmer climbs up the rope and hangs from it by the fingertips of one hand. Come one, come all. Come listen to the most marvelous story, my loves, he cries. 
Inexorably, the children form a circle around the storyteller. Bina REMs the dream around until she stands at Ravi's east bank by the towering structure that is Prince Kamran's twelve-doored pavilion. The river has not yet dried. Its young silver belly coils around the walled city like a serpent, and a bridge of boats, hundreds of them, many colored, lies drifting across it, the only access to Khizri Gate. Bina digs her heels into sand she has magicked into form so many times, and waits. Ramesh loves Mouse Town. He always has. He loves the downtown, understated, he has told so many, with its mix of modern and 19th century buildings, the Amway, Dr. Phillips. Ramesh skateboards on the sidewalk around Lake Aeola, past Ralfonso's kinetic union sculpture, with its 30 metal arms twirling gently in the wind, eternal dancers in each other's arms. Sunlight twinkles off the metal, and Ramesh is struck by a high-def memory, a new mother nursing a baby under a maple as swan boats pedal past. He is amazed by the love he feels for this hollow from centuries ago, but there isn't time to study. His wards pour into Lake Eola Park, laughing and pointing at the burst of color that is a hundred balloons a man in a Mickey suit has let go. They rise like prayers into the sky. The cotton candy man trills his bell as he bicycles by. Mickey waves and turns his attention back to the children. So, about the haunted castle, my dears, he says. I'd like to visit the pyramids next time, Ramesh thinks. Yes. I'd like that. Pyramids in the 22nd century after the Big Pan. But a siren is rising in the east. Ramesh grits his teeth and stands tall. Layla chooses Nouveau Paris. She fills it with the haunters of 27 Rue de Fleurus, Fitzgerald, Louis, Joyce, Pound, Papa himself. Gertrude stands at her post in the atelier, covered voluminously with Cezanne's oils, Picasso's sketches, Sedeca's cactus people, and talks of beauty and art to the children. The children. The children, Layla's wards, how their eyes shine. They believe in everything, worlds beyond the mosque and its walls. And why shouldn't they? There are cubist rockets, cactus spaceships, spiraling towers and calligrams, and next to all this art, tables filled with chocolate eclairs and macaroons and vanilla milfouille. How jubilantly the children stuff their faces. It's devastating, their glee. Gertrude smiles and fetches a guitar hanging from two nails. It's a lovely Selmer acoustic with brass strings. Gertrude begins to play a song that was composed in 1954, long after her death. Aucun regret. Non, je n'aurai aucun regret. Layla stands sentinel over the music. Deep beneath the mosque of lucid dreamers, in a vast chamber, Mother sits at the head of the cryocoffins. Her fingers move quickly on the terminal. Rows upon rows of lights blink on the console, one for each coffin. The children slumber, unperturbed by mother's subtle environment optimizations. It is almost time. Oleander goes for new Baghdad. Khalib picks old Delhi. Jake favors Stalingrad. He has a taste for antique war memories. And so on. Twelve dreamers, twelve watchers. The dozens wards, a hundred each, fill the cities with laughter and bellows, their joy untainted by knowledge of fear, a quintessential joy the dreamers cannot remember. Yet, they were in the same place too once, weren't they? Similarly free, protected, they were promised, told tales of wonder. Sensors suddenly go off in the mosque, ugly sirens shrieking in metal tongues. A shadow darkens the eastern skylights. It falls across the dream skies and landscapes built by the dozen. Lady Cataract has arrived. In the imam's niche, father lies prostrated in sajda, 
hands open, palms up to the heavens. Our Lady of Cataracts, he murmurs, blessed be thy name, sustainer of this world and others. Father is pale, sweat beads on his forehead. Thine will be done forever and ever. At first, a rumble. The foundation of the mosque trembles, then settles. The sirens fall dead, leaving a silence punctuated by clicks and console noise. The children complain in binary. Mother's face is white. Her fingers pick their way across the terminal, a digital guitar of her making. The dozen feel the quickening at their posts, see the shadow spreading like a stain in their skies. They REM around their cities, subtly spreading out their wards at a suitable distance from each other, whisper to the storytellers, each of whom smiles more broadly at the children and speaks with greater flair and more grandiose gestures. Lady Cataract begins to sing. It is an anthem known to the children, to the dozens, to the fathers and mothers. It has been driven into their bone marrow, into their digital consciousness from infancy. As the song floats across the void and through their walls, the listeners see an image. A woman in white, half her face covered with a cross-hatched veil, strolling across endless eons. Her eyes, pink violaceous like distant galaxies, bore through every community's constructs. Before she begins blinking rapidly, she never stops singing. The half-nude snake charmer doesn't pause when one of the children giggling at his words, a seven-year-old boy with black curly hair, stops moving. Joy and life seep out of his eyes before the corneas turn white from cataracts. He sways a little. A digital retinoblastoma unfurls like a flower and spiders its way across his brain. Abscesses and boils pop out on the boy's body. The storyteller laughs and gestures to the children to come closer. As they lean in, a hole appears in the ground beneath the boy's feet. Before any of the now contagious lesions has a chance to leap, the hole has swallowed the boy. Bina feels something tumorous in her own throat. She chokes it down. Seven more holes appear in Mughal Lahore. New Baghdad and Nouveau Paris aren't that lucky. Each suffers about 40 holes. Softly, irrevocably, she walks in beauty across the night. Lady Cataract continues to sing. Her song boomerangs across clusters, tears down mosque and church walls, gouges out herd enclosures, domes and barricades, rips the fabric of dreamscapes. Countless dozens REM their wards into stupor, forgetfulness, and perceived safety as the cull sweeps through them. No screams of pain, mothers make sure of that, but the blankness of a cataract that crescendos toward oblivion. And still the other children dream. Mickey guffaws and draws the children closer. The snake charmer winks at a girl before quickly climbing and disappearing into the clouds, only to reappear as Baloo the bear, in a hat, laughing at his own silliness. A banner wafts across the sky of Old Delhi. Love is real, buckaroos. Gertrude strums harder. Aucun regret, she sings. Non, je n'aurai aucun regret. The children dream of love and space. And with their dreams, untainted by regret or remembrance, they light another year's fire. The End So that was crazy. <laughs> That's a, that is a crazy <laughs> trio of stories uh, to, to, uh, to, to listen to, especially after living through COVID. And we're still living through it, unfortunately. Yes. It's what strikes me a lot about this tree of stories is the range of emotional reactions people get. A perfect host is just unsettling. Everything mm -hmm. seems too clean, too perfect. This woman seems very elusive and mysterious, but also accessible. She indulges in all these different contradictions that 
she you know keeps all this hand sanitizer everywhere and she masks everywhere she goes mm-hmm. but at the same time she believes in all these false remedies and spreads misinformation online i feel like that is such interesting commentary about how we can go back and forth in our reactions to a pandemic yeah, i totally agree with you it's a very it's a very effective and subtle story i mean the protagonist is you know, the personification of pestilence, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It is so beautifully written. And more than that, you know, it is simultaneously seductive and creepy. And I enjoyed it immensely, despite the subject matter. And it's interesting that you say that these stories were commissioned very early on. And sometimes I still wonder, like, is it too soon for pandemic fiction? There's been so many stories of the last few years that just touch upon a virus or pandemic in a way that feels reflective of our Mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm like, is it too close? But people just seem to be really fascinated by still experiencing these stories. Yeah, and I think, you know, fiction tends to be most effective when it's written in response to the time it's written in. Obviously, you can, you know, the, the emotions are still raw. The writers are still processing you know, the, the, the things that they're writing about. For example, in, in Shopping Day, you know, Tanana Reeve-Dew's contribution to these stories, it's very dystopian. It imagines a, a world that is, is terrifying and disturbingly believable in the threat to families and keeping them together and, and how, you know, their, their fight to stay together is probably the thing that will enable them to survive. No, and what really struck me a lot about Shopping Day is a couple of different things. One is how the most horrifying element isn't the starvation or the climate disaster or the military curfew, but it's the lack of trust that you mm-hmm. have, even in people that you thought were friends. You know, and I also super excellent point. Yeah, yeah. and what also strikes me too is that this is this could be a pandemic story, but this could also just be a scenario that is happening in places around the world as we speak. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things that, that makes it so effective. And, you know, with our third story, Lady Cataract Comes to the Mosque, I mean, you know, I, it, and I think by his own admission, Usman says this is one of his ventures into fiction of the weird. I think I heard him uh, uh, or or read a quote by him. That's the way he describes uh, the story. Because like the Cat Valenti story, Usman creates the personification of a disease that infects the dreams of sleeping children. Yeah. Uh, he really examines dreams as a mean of, means of escape. And it feels almost like a giant absurdist metaphor about how sad and tragic and ridiculous and maybe sometimes incomprehensible the past two years have been. And more than that, it just has this layer of commentary about how everything that has happened, while it has affected you and me, Marco, Mm -hmm. really is going to affect the most the very young children and teens who've grown up and had the course of their lives change as they're getting into adults. I think about that all the time. My son, my youngest, was in his um, senior year of high school when this went down. And for him to have to figure out how to navigate that from home, even as, you know, our institutions were trying to figure out how to make stuff like that work, you know, without putting his life on hold and, you know, preventing him from eventually getting into college. Yeah. You know, the, the, the I think you're absolutely right. The ramifications on the young are probably the most troubling. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the ending? I know there's there's a quote that Ooh. the love is real, buckaroos. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's for those who aren't familiar. Uh, Chuck Tingle is a two-time Hugo Award finalist <laughs> and also uh, writes a lot of, you know, science fictional erotica, sometimes of dinosaurs even. <laughs> and, you know, but he is also one of the most optimistic, heartwarming, you know, figures in sci-fi fantasy right now. And to have his catchphrase be part of the story, is this also supposed to symbolize some sort of optimism? 
I would tend to think so. I mean, I mean, you know, Usman, uh, I think, is is uh, by and large an optimistic writer. You know, I mean, he he works as a doctor in real life. And I know that, you know, a lot of um, the stuff that goes into his stories comes from that life experience. And, you know, I couldn't possibly hope to articulate the message of the story better than Chuck Tingle or Usman. So I will definitely leave it at Love is Real Buckaroos very happily and not not attempt to to um, add to it. These stories just feel so infectious in their observations and their emotions. And listeners, if you've liked these infectious stories, we would love if you could give us a five-star review wherever you've listened to them. And join us for our next episode when we present two more dystopian tales. Until then, keep washing your hands and pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 7, features A Perfect Host by Catherine M. Valenti. Shopping Day by Tanana Reeve Dew, and Lady Cataract Comes to the Mosque by Usman T. Malik. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Leon Nixon and Natalie Nottis. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.